Welcome back to Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailists Foundation. And coming up this time... You have to pass uh, three, four exams or something like that. And it's very difficult because you have a direct translation. So, for example, it will be from English into Spanish. But you have a inverse translation. So it could be from Spanish into English. And then you have an interpretation. Braille in Spain and translating for the Spanish Foreign Ministry. George Bernard Shaw, in his play Pygmalion, wrote that the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. That line has its roots in spoken language, though of course in English rather than Spanish. But what about written language? We quite often talk about Braille being useful as a tool when learning languages, but Maria Garcia Garbendia of Madrid in Spain has taken things to the next level by qualifying as an official translator for the Spanish Foreign Ministry. As well as professionally translating to and from Italian and Portuguese, she's also a fluent speaker of English, German, French and Russian. She's been blind effectively since birth due to retinopathy of prematurity, learnt Braille from the age of three, and in addition to her translation work, she has a part-time job as a lawyer in one of Spain's principal banks. In this episode of Braillecast, we hear more about her legal and translation work, the availability of Braille and Braille technology in Spain, and the Spanish Braille code. We also discuss her thoughts about Grade 2 Braille, scenarios in which Braille is especially useful, and Braille education. And it's with her own Braille education that we started off this interview. I always uh, went into a mainstream school. I never studied in a Braille school. And in fact, um, for example, I learned music as well. I, I played uh, piano uh, and I, I did uh, music notes, reading and these kind of things. And I studied always in a, in a mainstream uh, school. Also for music, I went into, so once a week when I was a child, I went into blind school for, le- for learning uh, notes and for, you know, if I had questions regarding some special music science of this kind of things, but studies and conservatory and this kind of things I did always in a mainstream school. And how I learned Braille, uh, so I don't remember very well because I was I was three. I mean, but I I remember that I went to the something related to the blind organization in Spain. I think they so they had classes for people who learned in mainstream schools, and I learned in this way. And sometimes when something should be transcribed, and uh, the the personnel of of couldn't do it, and so my mother helped. Uh, my mother uh, transcribed for me some books with the Perkins machine, you know. And so on, she learned to ride with me <laughs> as well. Mm, for sure. So did this happen all the way through school? I mean, right up to, to when you left school, was your mum still transcribing books for you or uh, had things sort of sorted themselves out by then? It was only when I was very child. So it sounds like things were fairly organised uh, over in Spain. We we have horror stories now of people who didn't get their Braille in time, you know, over in England. But what was it actually like? I mean, for a, a, a little blind girl in mainstream, presumably with this Perkins Brailler that you had to carry around and making a, a whole load of noise and, you know, classmates probably didn't enjoy that so much. Was there anything apart from the Perkins that you could use at that point or was it just a Perkins and lots of Braille paper? 
So I I started, I don't know, with a piece of wood and there were uh, bright dots there and I started with uh, with a little metal pieces, you know, and each piece uh, had in a, in, a, in a hole, you know, and, but, um, yeah, but the, the second thing, very, very sad, uh, very soon I passed to the Perkins because I was never able to write with the, I don't know what's the name in English, these kind of things with the, you have to write from right to left. Oh, a hand frame. Yes, this. I was never able to write with this thing. And I was lucky and I had a Perkins very, very soon. So I always used uh, the Perkins. I had two. I had one I left in the school and I had another uh, at home. Of course, there would be problems. I mean, because people, you know, the child, other, other children, of course, they said that it was very noisy, uh, that teachers, some teachers said that lose the concentration and these kind of things. But in that time, it was the only possibility. I mean, and I, I, I wrote with my Perkins until, until high school, I think. In the middle of high school, I received my first Brian speak from Blaise Engineering. And it was a very, a very big step in, in ahead, of course. Mm. And the Braille and Speak didn't have a Braille display, did it? That was just with a Braille um, input keyboard, I think. So what was the first device with a refreshable Braille display that you used? The first uh, thing that uh, came into in Spain was the Braille Speak. And uh, afterwards came the Braille Light. That was the same thing with a Braille uh, display. And it was very difficult, I mean, because theoretically... Um, so you could rent it or you can buy from the ONCE. So, but uh, ONCE, uh, they gave only bright light to deaf blind people, not for nor, uh, only blind people. And so I had to justificate it a lot that I learned languages in that time. I learned, I, I had started learning, I had still started learning German, for example, and English as well. And so I needed, and I justified that I needed because of the languages and I got uh, I was lucky and they gave me a bright light and it was for me it was a very big uh, very big step because before and but it was at I was at university in that time uh, I, and I studied law and can you imagine you know law it means a lot of notes a lot of things a lot of paper and before of this when I only had my brain and speak I had a braille um, printer called Portatile and I had to close all the doors because it was really very noisy. And I went to the kitchen that it was in the other part of the house. <laughs> and I left printing and printing for hours, you know. It's quite interesting because certainly I had this idea that perhaps European countries used different Braille displays and different note takers, you know, and the Euro Braille and things like this. And, and so far, actually, what you're saying marries up there are a lot of people in england who had braille light note takers uh, and then it was sort of slowly overtaken by the braille note and then braille displays um, mostly from freedom scientific and humanware and a few hymns products and uh, earlier on we sort of had alva and handy tech and teeman and a few other products like that is, is this sounding familiar 
Yes. There was only a, I think, a Spanish braille display. It was called Echo Braille, but it was only a braille display without keyboard. After my braille light, I had a handy tech, a brailleino, and now I have a, a braille one, and I hope to have an braille young 20 uh, in the future. And I have an Orbit Reader, a second braille display, because I need always having two braille displays, because um, I had two experiences in which um, when I had the, the Actilino, it broke two days uh, before an official exam for the foreign minister that I have from translation exam. So, of course, I needed another one, you know, because if I could have only one, only my, my Actilino, I would be in panic, you know, because I can do a translation exam without a braille display, you know, it's impossible. Sure. And the, the, the Braille 1, for people who don't know, looks very similar to the Brilliant 20, as I understand it. It's sort of um, a slightly rebadged version of the Brilliant 20. You're talking about spare Braille displays, which I presume in Spain um, is something of a luxury. And certainly in England, I don't know many people who would go as far as to say that they have a spare Braille display, although actually if they were pushed on it, you know, people would say that perhaps they do. I certainly have uh, two Braille devices. Well, I have three if you count the Orbit Reader. But there'll be people out there who say, of course, it's nice to have Braille, but, well, your computer does talk to you, and although it's not ideal, could you not just do, you know, the exam with speech? And I understand the arguments, but I'm wondering, um, as somebody who's been using Braille for a long time, do you ever now sit at a computer and just use the speech or do you always have the Braille display plugged in and, and always use it? Because I know certainly for me, if I wake up first thing in the morning and I'm checking my emails, I don't necessarily have to have the Braille display on to do that. But if I was reading a document, then I would. So is that the same for you? Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same. So I mean, I think for, in my opinion, they are two complementary devices. So of course I use the computer and I write uh, faster with the computer and everything that you want. Okay, but and for me, computer is okay for uh, checking my email, for, for writing emails, for, for surfing in the web, for this kind of things, you know? But if I have to read an important document, in the, in the, if I have to study, I need Ray. I have never been able to study with speech. I can't concentrate myself. I can't memorize. Um, I have, I think that also we are blind. We have a graphical memory. I mean, when I learned in a, in a foreign language, for example, if I see written in Braille, I pay more attention and I can't fix better in my mind how the word is written. And I prefer taking notes with a Braille display because also I write uh, very fast with a computer and everything. I write faster uh, with a Perkins keyboard. Another thing that for me is I couldn't uh, live without it now are I have an iPhone. And for me, the input Braille is the best thing that was invented in the world. I am very fast. And in fact, actually, I don't know writing without uh, input Braille. So I don't know writing with um, with the normal keys. And for example, people said, uh, a lot of people said, but you can connect the Braille display to the telephone. So, so boring, so slow. So why I should carry out two devices instead of one? You know, I have the input braille. I write long tests with uh, the input braille. So really emails and things. 
Yeah, I, I'm like this. I, Braille screen input to me was a was a real game changer when it came in. I, I hated writing text messages, and then Braille screen input came along, and I thought, yes, actually, this is quite a nice experience. I'm really pleased that that works for you. What is the Spanish support like? I mean, I guess it's good enough for you to use it. I mean, is it robust? And what's it like not only in in Braille screen input, but also you know on some of these braille displays that we're talking about, like the Braille One and the Brilliant and and others, you know, there's, there's whole user interfaces and menu structures as well as the braille code itself. How well is the Spanish translated? Is there a Spanish translation at all, or do you have to use it in English? And you know, does it make mistakes? And I mean, just how good is it overall in Spanish? Usually, so for example, Humanware and Orbit Research as well are, or yeah, Freedom with Focus, I think as well. Yes, everything is translated in Spanish with with Spanish tables. That is not a problem in this case. Over in the UK, the way in which you get your Braille equipment varies. If you're a student, you would get it through Disabled Students Allowance if you're at university. If you're at school, the school would be expected to buy it. Uh, And if you were at work, there's an access to work scheme. And there are various charities and organisations that uh, provide equipment to blind and partially sighted people. And of course, there's personal independence payment. Looking at the Spanish um, way of doing things, one of the things that stuck out to me is that basically every Braille device that we've that we've talked about certainly in terms of purchasing braille devices you've either um bought it yourself or onsay have bought it so it sounds like uh onsay are basically uh the suppliers of uh, and and the purchasers of braille devices in all cases you don't have the same sort of schemes that we have where the government buys it is that right government i suppose that they give money to the onsay and they leave the hand free to the onsay that onsay does what they want onsay give uh, you only devices so if you are student or you are working so if you are not working if you are not uh, studying or if you are uh, over 65 years old and you have not to so you you, you don't work anymore you don't have uh, any 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 help anything but also you are working or you are a student if you apply they give you only what they want and in this case they give you only a focus 40 or now but really now now i mean after the pandemic so uh, uh, since uh, january uh, 1991 i think give you the bright not touch so if you uh, want another bright display, you have to buy. So Onse has um, so it's a company as well. So they 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 sell devices, bright devices, but they sell only some of them. Now, for example, they sell Bright Not Touch, they sell Freedom devices, and I think only that. So they don't, for example, Brilliant, they will sell, but I don't know when. There is another another small company they called Tenius that they sell devices as well, especially from Humanware and oh, sorry, Onse sell Orbit as well. But if you want another things, for example, if I now if I uh, want to see a Brilliant or something or Anims devices, I have to travel. And for example, uh, two years ago before the pandemic, I wanted to see the Polaris and I had to travel to Lisbon. I mean, that sounds bizarre to me. I mean, we're so used to in England, if you want to see a Braille display, you have to go to a sight village exhibition or something. And uh, I mean, we complain about waiting six months for one of those. And, uh, you know, some companies in the UK um, 
will actually come out and do demos in your home. Here, there's only a, a like size city, but uh, in smaller. It's called Tiflo Innova. The first time was wonderful, and in the so after it was worse and worse. And I suppose next it's uh, next year if pandemic allows, and I hope that it could be better. And yes, in Tiflo Innova there are companies, uh, human where is is always there, for example. And I don't know, not. Not all companies, because Honeytech, for example, is not there. But some companies are there, and then you can see. But, you know, it's a time every three years. And so, I mean... Mm, That's a long wait. I wonder if we could turn our attention towards translation and languages. Um, Your English is really very good. I'm very impressed. Just explain, you know, when did you start learning uh, I guess you learned English first, or, or did you learn other languages first? Like, why did that start? So English at school, of course, because here English is the first language at school. But I had a, a very big problems writing problems because I didn't see the blackboard. And I mean, I was a child. I hadn't the because now you know now I can say please, can you spell? Okay, but when you are a child. You know, you have not the same initiative or the same, you know, courage or something, you know. And so I remember that when I finished school and I was 18 or something like that, I hated English really because for me it was been very difficult, very everything. What happened afterwards? I started to learn podcasts. I started when I bought my iPhone, when I started to, you know, it was a very interesting world that interested to me. And I discovered a very beautiful language, you know, and I think that I improved a lot my English in the last years uh, because I then I started to study because I wanted but I presume that, I mean, if you're translating into Portuguese and into, um, did you say Italian and, and you know some German and some Russian, so uh, presumably you'd have started learning those languages while you still didn't like English. So presumably uh, English wasn't a barrier to you learning those other languages. Other languages I started because at university I studied something called European law and I had to uh, choose two between English, French, and German. So I learned French and and German. And I started learning German because I love music. I love classical music. I love Schubert songs. And I wanted to understand Schubert songs and to be able to sing Schubert songs. And because German was more similar writing and speaking you know and so for me I thought that it would be easier (laughs) and so afterwards was French at university and after French was Italian because I loved opera as well and so I wanted to learn and afterwards it was Portuguese and Russian and Russian was because I had a very bad experience in a travel in Poland it was 20 years ago something like that and uh, so I discovered that in Poland, in that time, people uh, didn't understand English. And so I felt lost. I think, you know, and I thought, oh, OK, what language can I learn that the part of Europe that don't understand English could understand me? And Russian was um, an interesting thing regarding Braille displays because how to have Braille displays with acrylic Braille tables, you know, and those kind of things. Yeah, I can imagine actually by comparison, something like uh, French or German or Italian would be uh, fairly straightforward in Braille because at least you're, 
you're working with the same sort of alphabet. But that leads us nicely on because, I mean, English has a system of grade two. We know, for example, that uh, that French has the abrégé, which is a system of, of what we would call French grade two, I suppose. And I think German does. Um, but I think Spanish doesn't, as far as I know. And I don't think Italian does either. So, so yeah, what's that like? For us, it was a problem. And in fact, I can't read English grade two. And all instructions of, on humanware, uh, which comes in the box of, of this place, I can't read. And for people who uh, studied in a blind school, it could be different. I don't know what me that I studied in a mainstream school. I didn't know that it was uh, English grade two. And in fact, now for me, I think that grade two, it's complicated. So because um, in the past could be because with books, with papers, uh, the space could be important. But now that we have uh, all digital things, we have computers, we have Word documents and everything. I think that um, it doesn't work for a foreign um, people to learn grade two in any language, because um, as a foreign people, when I read in a in a foreign language in an, in English, for example, for me it's very important to pay attention how the words are written, and so if I have to um, translate first from grade two to grade one and afterwards to see, you know, in my mind all the letters. It's a double translation, you know, and, and the same thing for German and French and everything. Yeah, and I think it probably um, doesn't help that you come from a language that doesn't have grade two. So to me, because I've already got used to this idea that when I'm in English, I need to um, expand the grade two into grade one. It's sort of in my head. I've sort of got used to doing that. That's that's just a state of mind that when I start reading Braille, I'm going, right, OK, there are going to be contractions in here. I need to uncontract them. I need to do. And I don't actually think about it. It's not a conscious process. It's a bit like um, if you're um, and I, I know a little bit of French. So if I'm reading French, my head automatically switches into French mode. I don't have to sit there and translate in my head that this is what this word means. It just kind of happens at a subconscious level. And I think for for me, this has been happening for a long time uh, with grade two. So if I encountered grade two in a foreign language, okay, it would be difficult. It would be extremely difficult. But because I would already understand that subconscious process, I think I'd be able to do it. Whereas I can't imagine, I mean, I was thinking of asking you you know, why don't you just, you're clearly capable of learning languages. Why don't you just learn English grade two? But I think it must be such a difficult process for someone that's never actually needed it, you know, in, in the mother tongue. In fact, a, fr- a friend of me uh, gave me a book in German grade two and it was impossible. So I, I tried and, and I don't know. Um, I mean, perhaps with the appropriate uh, teacher and way, I don't know, you know, but, or I don't know, perhaps I am an adult and now it's more difficult. I don't know. But I think it could be interesting that children knows that in English exists a great two and that they have to learn or that someone when they are children, you know, when they, at the same time that they learn English as a foreign language, they learned the great two, it would be fine. Have you lived abroad for an extended period of time? I wonder if that would help if you spent sort of a year in Germany or a year in France, whether you'd then get used to it. The, I spent 
the longer period was a month in Germany. And before the pandemic, I looked for an English country, something like that, but unfortunately I didn't find anything. And this is another thing that I think it's important because all kind of activities are doing for young people uh, for under under 25. <laughs> and I don't know why, you know, because of course there are adult people as well that we would like to improve our knowledge as well. And we would like to make friends in different countries because making friends, in my opinion, is they encourage you a lot to learn in a language, to improve your language, of course, you know, and it's very important to share with other people and with other blind people as well and to have the possibility to travel alone without your family or without your friends or without sighted people that and having the possibility to do excursions to to visit the country to you know and yeah i think that uh, blind world should um, yeah work a little bit more in this in that uh, area so let's turn our attention to your job. And you say that you're a lawyer, but you're also an official translator. And you're an official translator in, in the foreign ministry, I understand, um, of, of the Spanish government um, in Italian and in Portuguese. Um, so why not in English? I guess because you've got better qualifications in Italian and Portuguese. Is it is it as simple as that? So my I am authorised by the foreign Spanish foreign minister uh, and this is an exam. You have to pass uh, three, four exams or something like that. And it's very difficult because you have a direct translation. So, for example, it could be from English into Spanish, but you have a inverse translation. So it could be from Spanish into English. And then you have an interpretation and you have to be almost bilingual to pass these exams. I can say, for example, I can tell you that I did the Portuguese exam before the pandemic, so uh, two, three years ago, and there were, I don't know, 50 people or more. And at the last uh, exam, interpretation exam, there were only two of us. And unfortunately, I don't have the, so my knowledge of English is not so good for doing a, an inverse translation, of course. And there are a lot of bilingual English people uh, who speak much better uh, than me, of course. Sure. And we're talking about translation at an incredibly high level. So actually, I guess the translation you would need is, is very precise. I imagine, I mean, are you translating mostly written work or are you translating spoken work as well? So the, the title authorized you to do both of them. But I personally, I make written translations because I have another job, so I can't, uh, because spoken is in the morning, you know, and in the morning I am working in the bank. And are official, I mean, are all sentences, uh, trial sentences, I don't know, uh, marriage contracts or board certificates or um, degrees, certificates, you know, these kind of things. And, for example, sentences are very difficult because uh, there are words in your language that they are not in the other languages. And, for example, Italian and Portuguese and Spanish are Latin languages, all of them, and are similar. I mean, English, for example, the English law is very, is, is different, you know, and there are concepts, uh, things that we have in English and we have not in Spanish, for example. Like, how do you translate this? You know, it's very difficult. So what led you to do it? Was it your law degree that did this? I mean, did you just wake up one morning and think, you know what, I'm not doing so well career-wise, you know what, I'm just going to go in for this exam? Or 
did somebody suggest that you do it or you know how did that happen i studied law because there weren't uh, good dictionaries uh, accessible dictionaries at that time and degree here in spain there could be only at one university here in madrid and it was something new you know but afterwards i thought I don't like law. I work in the bank because, yeah, it's a law uh, work, but it's not it's not a trial or something like that or a prosecution or something like that, you know. And it's not a court. And so, as I wanted to become translator, I informed myself, and I think it was my brother that told me that there would be this possibility. And so, first, I did the Italian um, exam. I don't know. 14 years ago or something like that and three years ago they did Portuguese exam. And is it as exciting as you thought it would be when you first started doing it or do you regret taking the translation route? Oh no, 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 I love I love it. In fact my dream would be to become translator in the uh, of in the foreign minister. I mean, because so it's uh, two different things. Now I am official translator but this is an authorization. I mean, uh, you have you passed an exam and foreign minister gives you an authorization for doing official translations. It means that there is a list for every language and you are in the list. If you marry and Spanish, for example, or something, you are looking for in the list and you have 100 translators and you, uh, you write uh, whoever you want. It's a freelance thing. But another thing is um, taking part of the, of the staff of um, foreign minister and to become translator so uh, and translate things for minister but this is another uh, very big exams there is, is a process you know a selection process and and I hope if if uh, whenever would be the possibility I would like to do it so we've talked a lot about translation just very briefly what is the the job in the bank I am um, I job like as a as a lawyer so and I I, I law with sighted people I am the only blind and I I am very proud uh, of this because in Spain it's not so uh, normal I mean there are few few really few uh, people blind people who work outside the uh, world and so there is an institution in Spain so we have the Spanish bank and we have another institution that uh, it calls the the bank uh, defender you know, and it's an independent institution, authority. And so with when people, people first uh, complain to the bank and when people complain to the bank, if don't agree, so if don't agree uh, with the with the answer, the bank answer, they can to make a second, it's like a second instance um, to this institution, this defender uh, authority. And so I am in charge. I have to uh, defend the bank against this institution. And, and I answer as well letters that are uh, addressed to the CEO, bank CEO or president, you know, and with my my colleagues when they have difficult complaints and in which there are law questions something they answer me and I help them as well and when you're translating just going back to the to the translation job presumably you're translating from Spanish into Portuguese or Italian or from Italian back into Spanish so do you read the source document so, for example, do you read the Spanish document in Braille and then type it out? Yes, 
because of this, I love uh, brilliant and I love a braille displays in which it would be possible to transfer word documents and not only TXT because TXT is so limited for me. I mean, because I receive everything in Word or in PDF and I have to convert to Word, but you know, to convert in TXT would be a second step and another additional conversion, you know. And so I transfer the original document in my braille display. I read there but not connected to the computer. So as an autonomous device. And I write the translation in the computer. Sure. But then to check that you've brailled it correctly, do you then connect the braille display to the computer to read the translation? Or do you copy the translation back to the braille display? Or do you just proofread it using speech? I just uh, pa- uh, pass the correct the orthograph uh, to the computer, the orthograph um, corrector, so the tool, the orthograph tool, and I do it. Ah, so it's a spell check, essentially. Yes, because, for example, so uh, especially when I translate into Spanish, you know, I can't do it because I, you know, it's my language. So you can just listen to the speech reading the Spanish. Yes, uh, when I when I translate into Italian or Portuguese, I take the 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 orthograph so um, correction so we're coming up towards the end of the interview i did just want to touch on some philosophical questions before we finish we've talked a lot about braille devices and how you use them and we've been concentrating mainly on things like the brilliant and and the braille one which are piezoelectric displays and we've talked briefly about the orbit reader uh, the impact of the orbit reader in the uk has been amazing it's got lots of people using braille who've sort of never used braille before and it's really sort of got people in you know back into using braille displays and all of this sort of thing what's the impact of those displays been particularly the orbit in in spain and possibly you know even further afield if you can stretch that far i think that a lot because usually people here only had the braille displays which were offered by Onset. So there were only focus uh, braille displays. And so Orbit is smaller, it uh, has more memory than focus, it's better, you know. And so it, uh, the, the, it's uh, cheaper, much more, more cheaper. And so it's, um, I think the impact was a lot. And from, you know that I, I uh, Orbit remembered me, I think, I don't know if it's only my opinion, but it remembers me a lot uh, to the uh, Braille light. Yeah, very much so, in a very similar form factor, just with different sorts of Braille cells. What about the international market? If we talk about less developed countries, if you like, do we need to do more to bring Braille into those countries? What's the impact of you know lower cost displays being there? I can uh, talk about Latin America. And I think, yes, because they, so more of, of people in those countries, they don't, they didn't know Braille displays or because it was something very expensive that there is in the States, you know, or, or in Europe, but for us, it's so expensive. It's not, it's not possible, you know. And now with the uh, orbit, I think, um, so it's available. You can't have access to it you know 
And um, it's the same thing more or less with bright one because, uh, okay, it's the, the price is, is double, uh, but it's um, have another, another things, you know. And um, yes, I think it's very, very important um, the things that Orbi Research uh, did. And I know uh, some people in, in, in America, in South America, that uh, or Latin America, that, um, that bought an orbit and, you know, Braille displays before orbit, it was something uh, that didn't they they couldn't reach, you know. Now they can, and this is very important for me. So, Maria, this has been a really fascinating uh, chat. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, just very briefly before we finish, you produce a podcast of your own, which I think many of our listeners. Um, would struggle to listen to because it's Spanish. But if we've got any Spanish speakers in the audience, just tell us about the podcast that you do, where we can where we can find that. I started 13 uh, June uh, last year, 2020, uh, because it's the, my podcast is dedicated first. The, the, the most important things are Apple devices because so I bought my iPhone three and a half years ago and I I thought amazing uh, for me it was a very important step ahead and afterwards I bought my Mac and unfortunately I saw that in English countries there were and there are a lot of podcasts regarding Apple World and demonstrations and uh, and things and everything about uh, around the, the, this, this, this subject and uh, however in Spanish uh, language there there wasn't, and there there are podcasts about accessibility, but in general, you know. And so I decided to create this podcast dedicated to Apple World and to Braille as well, for the the same reason because uh, there is nothing in Spanish language is uh, related to Braille, to Braille displays, to uh, what is what are the I know the new devices from human world. What are the new devices for IMS? What is you know, and talking about Braille. And if people do want to listen, um, if we have any Spanish-speaking listeners in the audience and they want to tune in, where can people find your podcast? What's it called? Yeah, so my podcast is called Accessibilidad Universal, so I spell A-C-C-E-S-I-B-I-L-I-D-A-D, second words, universal, so it's it's the same. And you can find it in all uh, podcast platforms, in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast, Doncast, and in all, all mind platforms, podcast platform. And the Accessibilidad Universal podcast is hosted on anchor.fm, and there are links to find it in the show notes. If you'd like to contact Maria about anything you've heard about in this episode, we have permission to share her email address, which is m.g.garmendia, G-A-R-M-E-N-D-I-A, 28 at icloud.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailists Foundation. You can find more Braille-related content by subscribing to Brailcast, all one word, in your podcast client of choice, or listening to Brailcast, connecting the dots for Brailists everywhere on your smart speaker. You can also find past episodes on our website at brailcast.com. 
If you have comments on the podcast or suggestions of topics or guests for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at braylists.org. You can also find the Braylists on Twitter at Braylists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. New listeners are always welcome. So if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. The costs of producing this episode were defrayed by a grant from the Activate Fund of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information, visit wcmt.org.uk.